Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, our Father, in an incredibly emotion-packed week that's just passed, what we do now, Father, is turn to you and to your word to decipher biblical principles to guide us to teach in the midst of human emotions. And whatever emotions were percolating in the hearts of people as they arrive this morning in one of these morning services, pray that you will speak in that steady, calm assurance that you reign. So, Father, in these moments to come, we pray that you will warm these hearts, that you will engage these minds, that you will shape these wills. Come here again, Father, to see Jesus and him only. We pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thinking about this subject takes my mind back to a, a setting years ago where I'm having lunch with some political leaders. And we wanted to talk, they wanted to talk about matters of the relationship of church and state. Oyster stew, clam chowder, and still taste it now. It's good. Yeah, it's good. And then because whenever when I'm with people of political leadership, I always keep my Declaration of Independence and Constitution on hand. I pulled it out, and I reminded them of the philosophical framework for our Constitution. Constitution, of course, was penned in 1789, and the Declaration of Independence 13 years earlier in 1776. And I noted with the deist, Thomas Jefferson had written, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That reading stood in my mind as I left them to take on my typical Wednesday counseling appointments. And there was a woman that would be arriving on the scene that afternoon, and I knew her life story. Her father was a pastor, a single mother. She'd gone to a Christian college, met her husband there. There were red flags, but she tried to ignore them because, after all, this is a Christian college. But you see, when after years of being increasingly obvious that he was addicted to cocaine and continuously lured in the direction of alcohol, she looked at me and pondered how in the world she got into this situation. I posed some questions to her about her friendships at that time and how did they counsel her And interestingly, they said to her, do what makes you happy. I have her turn in her Bible 
strong Christian. To Nehemiah in chapter in chapter eight, and have it read to me this phrase. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. I say to her, it does not read, the happiness of this world is your strength. It says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And when you begin to substitute happiness for joy, you don't gain strength. You lose it. It's that conversation that stands out for me because what we find in a world in which so many people make decisions driven by emotion is that Christians have got to be cutting edge in the ability to make distinctions and to help people to distinguish between happiness Enjoy. Joy needs to be understood as a gift from God. To be used for God. It's not a fleeting emotion. It's a settled reality. And it comes out of a deep sense of the presence of God. Not alternatives to God. What I want to do with you in these coming minutes then is to think carefully, what does it mean? Even our Declaration of Independence talks about the pursuit of happiness. But how do we understand, who love Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, how do we understand the role and the realm of joy in a culture that pursues happiness? I want to draw out three significant observations here because as we continue to cultivate an understanding of spiritual leadership in this church and through this church, we've got to be able to distinguish for people what's temporary and what's permanent, and in the emotional realm, what is shaped merely by happiness and what constitutes true joy. The first of the three observations comes out of 27 through 30, and we're going to put it like this, number one, to experience deep joy. I want you to note, first of all, with me, the purity God expects among us. It's at the dedication of the wall. The word dedication appears not once, but twice, packed into this verse. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites. The sacrificial system had been put on hold. The walls of Jerusalem have now been secured. Thus, the Levites will be brought back into central realm. The purpose will be on ministry. The facility, the walls, will facilitate the ministry, not vice versa. And so wisely now, Nehemiah gets their attention, not on the facility, the walls, but on what the facility was to facilitate the ministry and the sacrificial system, all which will point to Christ Jesus. Gets them in their places. Brings them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings. 
Notice the musical expression that goes to the core of the emotional being. With singing, with cymbals, hops, and lyres. And then in the next verse, the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages, you see, of the Nidophathites, and also from Beth Gilgal and the region of Gabe and Osmaveth, where the singing, the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And now you are wise in what you just pick up here. Notice what appears in verse 30. Notice the sequence. Don't miss it. Who purifies first? The priests and the Levites purify themselves. Next, they purified the people. Third, the gates and the wall. They didn't start with the facility. They start with the ministry. Likewise here, we hear in the Body Life Update tonight, we are about the cross of Jesus Christ. A ministry. The facility facilitates the ministry. So he symbolically, brilliant leader that he is, positions the Levites up on that wall to make a symbolic statement about what matters most because the Levites would administrate the sacrifice. Notice the twofold emphasis of dedication in 27 and how it relates to purification in verse 30. And you began with the people and the leader. In a diary entry, Jim Elliott, the Alka Indian modern, wrote, God, I pray, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Now, if you and I are going to think this through very carefully, we've got to understand the relationship of purity to joy. That in a fallen world such as ours, when we substitute other things for God, other people than God, we will be substituting happiness in place of real joy. And our souls will shrink. But the person who knows deep, real joy finds what I will call an expansive soul that gets stretched, widened, by the breadth and by the depth of God's word, God's grace. Notice then the sequence. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. Verse 30, number 1. They purified the people. Number 2. The gates and the wall. Number 3. After I left medical school and went to graduate school to study to become a pastor, at least I was considering the option of being a pastor at that point. I was a resident director, and we had one day in our chapel an interview that was taking place with the president of Concerned Women for America. And she was standing in front of all these men. I'm standing in the back because I thought, this is going to be interesting. I want to get a sense of the men that I'm leading. 
how they respond to what she says. And she's asked the question in the interviews about what a, a single young woman should look for in a man. Now that will get the men leaning forward. And they were all leaning forward, and I'm studying, I'm watching, I'm observing. And I've got my notepad out, and I'm jotting down as her response was fast and succinct. Masculine purity. The interviewer then asked, can you, can you expand? What do you mean? She said, there's a, there's a relationship between purity and both masculinity for men and femininity for women that cannot be overlooked. For a young woman that is considering a relationship with a man who professes faith in Jesus Christ, listen carefully. Is there a sense of purity in the way in which he prays for her to God? Second, is there a sense of purity in the words he uses when he even speaks about God? Thirdly, is there a sense of masculine purity in the way in which he lives his life before God. And then profoundly, she paused and she said, and if a young woman cannot recognize this, she's going to pursue happiness in a relationship and lose out on the joy of Christ. Your parent, this morning, somehow, someway, in your own words, you need to find ways to shepherd the hearts of your children. So I speak to single men or single women this morning. Examine this very carefully and ask whether you are bringing both purity and, if you're a man, masculinity, and if you're a woman, femininity. And bringing them together in a way that has high impact upon relationships. Because this is going to help people to distinguish whether we are settling for happiness or we're truly connecting ourselves with joy. Now there's a second observation that I want to draw here out of these verses. That secondly, to experience deep joy... Note with me the witness that God produces through us. The purity God expects among us based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ, 27-30. But secondly, the witness God produces through us, 31-43. Now there is wise leadership here, and part of the wisdom of leaders is the capacity to understand the value of symbolism. How you provide a sense of symbolic leadership in the eyes of others. Nehemiah now is going to do this by visually positioning the leadership of the people up on the wall. On the wall. 
on the wall that has so recently been constructed for God's glory, not their security. Then I brought the leadership. I love that leadership phrase, don't you? I brought the leaders. He doesn't go up solo, draw attention to himself. He wants the attention to be found in the fact that this is a plural. He gets them up there. I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall. Pause. What's going on at this point? The opposition to the construction of that wall that came from those utterly opposed to the Jewish people in the land in the setting of Jerusalem. One of the leaders, Tobiah the Ammonite, in chapter 4, verse 3, had said, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. I can almost see that half grin of Nehemiah who says, no fox here, man. I've got the whole leadership up here. And it's not crumbling. Opposition, take note. And he doesn't even have to say a word. Wise, symbolic leadership doesn't have to use a lot of words, but understands the significance of godly presence, visually illustrating God's faithfulness. The leaders are on the wall. Now, musically, Nehemiah wants to be able to touch the core of emotion with Ezra. So they appoint these two great choirs, two powerful worship teams, you see. And notice they gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall, to the dung gate, and you'll begin to see the movements. But in the movements of 31 through 37, notice they do not overlook their heritage. Because in verse 36, he emphasizes that they are utilizing the musical instruments of David. In verse 37, at the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of what? In whom? The city of David. At the the ascent of the wall above the house of whom? David. To the water gate on the east. Now, as As Nehemiah does this, he would understand the relationship here of joy to this powerful event. Because it would be none other than David himself who would have penned this statement regarding the future resurrected one. Therefore, in Psalm 16:9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of what? Happiness? No. Joy. Psalm 16, verse 11. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then you consider that in relationship to what the writer of Hebrews penned in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, not the happiness, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Which means then that Jesus brought joy to the midst of suffering. You and I are going to be positioned periodically in life to be at the bedside of someone about going to the presence of the Lord. Somebody who will be able to bring that sense of joy in the midst of suffering. As a discipling statement, where few words at that point might be spoken, but a powerful witness is on display. You know what's interesting to me? As Nehemiah has this leadership, there's a lot of people named here. Good leader learns names. And he has them making their way up on the wall and beginning to walk forward to meet the other worship team. What fascinates me is that he is using the same journey he took when he did his reconnaissance in Nehemiah 2 when he examined the walls that had been broken down as the Babylonians had come in and conquered the Jewish people. What he is offering then is a before and after contrast. And he's forcing the people to consider not only was before, but what has now taken place after. And there is a visual picture, and the picture it's worth a thousand words plus. He's making a statement here. He's making a statement regarding the faithfulness of God and how all of this fits together for the glory of God. You ever been struck with the fact that 1996, Will Smith was in the movie Independence Day, and 2006, he was in the movie Pursuit of Happiness? And tie that connection to the Declaration of Independence. And are we involved in the pursuit of happiness? Or are we experiencing deep-rooted joy? Meanwhile, this brilliant orchestrator now gets the other worship team moving. And now we've got a a clockwise, counterclockwise thing happening here. And I want you to see where they meet up. In 38, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the Tower of Ovens to the broad wall above the gate of Ephraim, by the gate of Yeshanon, so on and so forth. But look, check it out, what happens in 39. They came to a halt at the gate of the God. Some great choreography happening here. Why? Verse 40. This is what I will call the point of convergence. So both choirs of 40, of those who gave thanks, stood in the house of God. People, that is where the sacrifices would be offered. They had been put on hold. But because the walls were such that the facility would facilitate the ministry, now the Levites, who have now been purified, sanctified, ready to go, 
are being given the opportunity to reestablish the sacrifices that will point to the one who eventually enter in through those walls as people were seeing Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The point of convergence is at the point, you see, where the ultimate sacrifice will take place. And Nehemiah is positioning them symbolically to communicate something prophetically about the one who is to come. Is this powerful? I'm standing in Allegheny General Hospital. Bill is by my side. His wife's in hospital bed. Bill is a pilot. We're talking about pilots, airports, Pittsburgh's airport, and the steeple of Union Church. And he puts to me in my hand this clip from a newspaper. Ever since the terminal opened, said the pastor of Union Church, Planes have buzzed the belfry like bees after honey. Gets so bad, low-flying jets turned our Sunday evening services into sudden prayer meetings. Reluctant to have their steeple carried away by some unwary pilot, the church topped it with an eight-foot neon-lighted cross. It's what comes next grips my heart. Because the newspaper article goes on to say the church is on the highest point near the airport and it's the lighted cross. The lighted cross can be seen at night by planes all the way from the Ohio border. One of the pilots, and I can see Bill, he was nodding his head as he read this to me. One of the pilots made this interesting comment regarding the lighted cross. Quote, Most of us are using it as a guide to the field. Unquote. And now what is happening symbolically is that Nehemiah is saying here, I'm giving you a guide to make your way across the field, the field of life. So he positions these two worship teams at the place in which the sacrificial system would be enacted. In 41, he lists the names. And then, in 43, what appears on the screen is a tremendous emphasis on the relationship of one's relationship with God and that of joy. And they offered great sacrifices, leading indicators of the one who would say, pertaining to that final sacrifice, Tadalestei, it is finished. They, as directional signs, in that very setting, offered great sacrifices that day and what? Rejoiced. Rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice. With great joy, the women, children, also rejoiced. And I want you to underline what comes next if you haven't done so already. 
And the joy, not the happiness, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. When you experience true joy, and the joy of the Lord is your strength, that joy is going to have powerful impact near and far. We're standing at Buckingham Palace. There's the picture. At an old telephone booth. And he and I are talking, and we're talking about how can you tell when majesty is present in Buckingham Palace? Currently the queen, prior era king. We both have our phones, and we're looking at the ways in which currently you can tell if the queen is in residence there. One has to do with which flag is flown. When the British flag is flown, majesty is absent. But when the royal standard flag is flown, majesty is present. Then you look at the gods, the standing gods. And if you're standing at Buckingham Palace, and only two gods are at their posts, Majesty is absent. But when there are four gods at their post, majesty is present. Then you look at the color gods. And if they are simply showing the colors of the British flag, the Union Jacks, majesty is absent. But if the emblem is plain red, the Queen's color, Majesty is present. The flag is flown high over the casts of my heart because the king is in residence there. A believer from Great Britain once wrote. And now your joy communicates in a way in which everybody needs to understand, majesty is present in your life. The king is in residence here. You refuse to substitute for Jesus Christ. You've got the fruit of the Spirit, which includes joy. You've embraced the fact that even in the midst of suffering, you can still have joy in a world that sees a conflict between the idea of happiness and suffering. You and I see the connection between joy and suffering because we're looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand, majesty, the throne, you see. The throne of God. And now you're distinguishing between joy and happiness. Joy is a gift from God. Joy is not a fleeting emotion. Joy involves a deep sense of God's presence. 
joy involves a connection to obedience rooted in faith in Jesus Christ. Joy is a vital component of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is not a restless pursuit of human experiences, though that might describe the pursuit of happiness. Joy is not rooted in what is temporal. Joy is to be a component of our whole dynamic with God. Joy is something that can be demonstrated in a joyless world that sees a contradiction between happiness and suffering. While we go to the point of convergence where Nehemiah took the people. The point of convergence where we see a connection between joy and suffering found in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. As I think about her, she is wondering, how did I find myself in this situation? And then she recalls friends who said simply, do what makes you happy. And then she reads to me from Nehemiah 8 at my request. The joy of the Lord is our strength, your strength, you see. Is that you? Now there's a third observation here, and I don't want you to miss it. For you see in verse 44 onward, To experience deep joy, note thirdly, the tithes and offerings God desires from us. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them in the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. And then mark what comes next. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And a wise friend put this in my box this past week. It's called Dave's Advice on Tithes, Tithing and Giving, Dave Ramsey. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. He writes, giving liberates the soul of the giver. You never walk away feeling badly, whether through a tithe, gift. To give away at least some of your money does, not only does it generate good, but it generates contentment. The Bible does not mention anything about pausing tithes. Neither does it say that we will go to hell if we do not tithe. The tithe, Ramsey goes on to write, which is a scriptural mandate, was not instituted for God's benefit because he already has all the money he needs. So why does he ask us to give 10% plus to him? Tithing was created for our benefit. 
It is to teach us how to keep God first in our lives. How to be unselfish people. Unselfish husbands, wives, parents, single people, employers, employees. God is teaching us how to prosper over time. Many people have observed that after they stop tithing, their finances seem to get worse. In the book of Malachi, God promises that if you do not rob him of your tithing, he will rebuke your devourers and protect you. And I mock what comes next. If you cannot live off 90% of your income, then you cannot live off 100%. It does not require a miracle for you to get through the month. I think that if you sit down and look at your budget, you will see that you can make it while giving at least 10%. Read the Bible, take from it what you will, and if you tithe, and you are tithing to God via the church, not to the church via God. If you tithe to God, you're doing it out of love for God, not guilt. And in a guilt-driven, happiness-pursuing culture, what a contrast. History again. I think my youngest son would appreciate me this morning. The history major. King of Prussia, Frederick William III, found himself in incredible trouble. He was carrying on a war that was meant to protect his country, but they were running out of funds. So after reflection, he decided to approach the women of Prussia and ask them to bring their gold and silver jewelry to melt, be melted down and made into money for their country. And he resolved, moreover, that for each gold or silver ornament, he would give in exchange a bronze or iron decoration as a token of gratitude. And each decoration would bear this inscription, I gave gold for iron, 1813. And they came out in droves. And the nation was protected. And I looked at that, and I pondered that. And I wrote down a statement years, not merely years ago, but re-emphasized again just last month. That when we pursue joy rather than happiness, we gain not lose, because we keep God first. Not our personal preferences first. And we find that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Psalm 48 must have been going on in the mind of Nehemiah. Because in Psalm 48, as he gathers the people together for this powerful musical presentation, the opening words are, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made known himself 
as a fortress. But notice what appears on the screen. Psalm 48, verses 12 to 14. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God. Forever and ever. And he will guide us. Forever. Don't substitute happiness for joy. Let's stand together. We need to get to the point of convergence where the ultimate sacrifice was made and we embrace what matters most. And so, Father, I pray now that in this culture of emotion, even the emotions of these pastors, equip this incredible congregation to be able to administer truth in a culture of confusion and draw people to the point of convergence where the one who knew joy experienced suffering and died in our place so that we could experience the joy of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And for this we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.